If you brought your copy of God's Word, be turning to John's Gospel, chapter number 4. Right there at the beginning of the New Testament. John chapter 4, as we preach a message titled, How Shall We Worship? I'm preaching this message because I want to take advantage of the theme of tonight, that's praise and worship. And so it's been on my mind for a couple of weeks now. In fact, I've read a couple of books on the topic of worship just to acquaint myself with biblical philosophies of worship. And, and from the uh, overflow of my study and, and reading, personal reading, I'm going to preach this message to you. And I believe God would have us to be reminded sometimes of what real worship is and, and what real worship looks like. Because as we're going to find out, it is one of the most misunderstood things in the, in the modern church today. And so I want us to understand, before we even come tonight and designate an entire service for praise and worship, I want us to understand what it means. This message is a little different than my normal style of message. I love to preach expositionally where I'll go verse by verse and pull all of my truth from that single text, but I'm just going to pull the main principle from this text, and then I'm going to use other portions of Scripture today that will be on the screen to help support that principle that I'm pulling out of John 4. But I think this message can be a help to us individually and corporately as a church. Now, I'm just going to read verses 19 through 24. But there's a lot that took place in verses 1 through 18 that you've got to understand. And I can sum it up in just a, a few phrases. Basically, Jesus was in a place called Samaria, standing by a well where they would daily draw water. When he was standing by that well, a Samaritan woman came by to draw water. So he took that opportunity to enter into a gospel conversation. It was a lengthy conversation, 18 verses of a conversation, where Jesus used the natural illustration of water to, to illustrate to the lady and teach her that if you'll drink the living water, you'll never thirst again. Of course, he was speaking of himself. She was sold. She said, I want that water. I want satisfied spiritually. How can I get it? Well... Jesus knew she wasn't quite ready for the living water until she was ready to deal with her sin. And so he asked her a question, kind of a random question. Where's your husband? She said, oh, Jesus, I don't have a husband. He said, I know, you have five. And the one you're sleeping with right now isn't even your husband. Now it got about as awkward then as it is now. It was like a mic drop. Why did Jesus go there? Well, because he knew that she wasn't ready to be saved until she was willing to see the depravity of her own soul. You understand somebody can't get saved until they know they need to be saved. Until they know they're lost. We have to be willing to deal with our sin. And so when Jesus accurately told this Samaritan woman her own heart condition, and they had never seen each other before, she knew this wasn't just a day-to-day -day man. He's got to be something supernatural. He's got to be something divine in order to know what's inside of my heart, what I've been hiding from everybody. And that's where we pick up verse 19. She called him a prophet. The woman saith unto him, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she, she, she's going to ask him a theological question about worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me. The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. 
But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. Now pay close attention to this verse. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Would you read that verse out loud with me, verse 24? Ready? Begin. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. How shall we worship? That's the question the Samaritan woman asked Jesus. In 1977, Maria Rubio of Lake Arthur, New Mexico, was assembling a burrito in her kitchen when she noticed that the skillet marks on one of her tortillas resembled the face of Jesus. She was so excited that she showed her husband and neighbors, and they all agreed that the burn marks in the tortilla did resemble the iconic Roman Catholic image of Jesus. So she went straight to her priest to have the tortilla blessed. She testified to the priest that the tortilla had changed her life, and Mr. Rubio agreed that she had become a more happy and submissive wife since the tortilla was burnt. The priest wasn't accustomed to blessing tortillas, they say. But he did it with reluctance. And after he blessed it, Miss Rubio, she took the tortilla home. This is a true story. She took the tortilla home, put it in a shadow box along with some cotton balls to make it look like Jesus was floating on the clouds. And then her husband built a little, a little wooden desk to display that shadow box. And they even put it in their backyard right here in this old shed and they built a shrine. It was called the Shrine of the Jesus of the Tortilla. You think it's silly, but more than 8,000 people came in two months to see this tortilla. Within two years, more than 35,000 people visited this shrine. And it went on for 28 years. It does have a sad ending, though. In 2005, Miss Rubio let her granddaughter take it to school for show and tell. Ah, she dropped the shadow box. It shattered. The tortilla was very crisp after 35 years. And it also shattered. Miss Rubio tried to put it back together, but for some reason nobody was interested in seeing a shattered tortilla. And the shrine was closed. It seems incredible, does it not, that so many people would treat an object like a burnt tortilla as something worthy of praise and adoration and even worship. Could you imagine someone doing that in liberal Kansas? And they would give us their address and we would put in the GPS the shrine of the Jesus of the tortilla, and it would take us to their shed. But 35,000 plus people did that, and it's sad. But what's even sadder is that this same kind of distorted worship can be found in many churches today. I, I don't think anybody in our community or, or maybe even in the nation has a shrine of a burnt tortilla in their church foyer. I'm just talking about the same kind of mindless, shallow, self-centered worship that happens in many churches that is totally foreign to what the Bible calls worship. Amen. When I say worship, I want us to be on the same page this morning. Here's what I mean. Our innermost being, responding with praise for all that God is, through our attitudes, actions, thoughts, and words, based on the truth of God as he has revealed himself. You might look at that and say, that's, that's so complicated. And that's exactly the problem. We have a shallow definition of worship. Worship is, worshiping an almighty God is somewhat complicated. It's not just music. 
It's our innermost being with praise for all that God is through our attitudes. It's through our actions. It's through thoughts. It's through words. That tells us that we can worship through other ways than music. Some people just call their, their, the music part of their service, they call that worship. Everything else is not worship for some reason. But I submit to you that worship is found in our prayer. Worship is found in our preaching. Worship is found in our fellowship. Worship is found in, in our singing. Worship is found in our giving. Worship is found in our serving. It's found when you're at work, you can worship. When you're at home, you can worship. When you're driving your car on the highway, you can worship. When you're in church, certainly, you can worship. It's our innermost being, our spirit, based on the truth of God. It is spirit and truth. And I'm here to tell you that, that, that this kind of worship is not really taking places in a lot of churches today. Because it seems like a lot of churches have went to one or two extremes. Now, I'm going to teach a lot today, so I want you to kind of, kind of engage your mind in this. Because at one end of the spectrum, worship seems to mean little more than some ritualistic liturgy where people are dressed up in priestly robes and there is starched and stuffy environments and you're, even, you're afraid to say one thing wrong or do one thing wrong or even drop a pin. It's so formal. But at the other extreme, worship aims to be as casual and as relaxed as possible, where some church services feel more like a social gathering at a coffee shop than a sacred gathering of God's people to adore and worship a thrice holy God. We got two extremes in modern Christianity, and that's where this Samaritan woman was stuck. She was looking for the proper method of worship. And the only two methods she could see were two extremes, the Samaritan method and the Jewish method. Let me talk about both for a moment. The Samaritans worshipped in spirit, but not in truth. You know how I know that? Because they based all their religion and their beliefs on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They did not believe that any other part of the Old Testament was inspired. Therefore, they didn't have full knowledge. They didn't have proper information. They were enthusiastic in their worship. They were excited in their worship. They were emotional in their worship. But the Samaritans lacked knowledge. They lacked truth. That's why Jesus said in verse 22, Ye worship, ye Samaritans, ye worship, ye know not what. Yeah, you get loud. Your hands are flying everywhere. You're running the aisles, throwing babies out of the balcony, but you have no idea why. The Jews, however, had the opposite situation. They worshipped in truth, but not in spirit. What do I mean by that? They accepted all the books of the Old Testament. In fact, they had the audacity to add to the books of the Old Testament. They held to it tightly. But they lacked the right heart. They lacked sincerity of heart. That's why when Jesus saw them worshipping through giving and praying and, 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 and fasting, he called them hypocrites. He, he called them phonies. He called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, meaning this. You do everything for the praise of man, but not for God. Yeah, you have your orthodoxy, you have your truth, but your heart is far from me. So the difference between the Samaritans' worship and the Jews' worship was huge. The Samaritans' worship was what I would call this, enthusiastic heresy. The worship offered at Jerusalem by the Jews was what I would call lifeless orthodoxy and the same two extremes as I mentioned are present in churches today 
Now follow this. On one hand, there are groups who get together and they hold hands and sway back and forth and sing songs and speak in ecstatic language and you can't fault their enthusiasm or even their sincerity, but far too often it is zeal without knowledge. On the other hand, there are those who hold firmly to sound doctrine, to Bible truth, but they've lost all the fervor of their faith. They know the right thing, but they can't seem to get excited about it. Jesus here rebukes both methods of worship. He says, Samaritan woman, it's not either or. It's both. It's not the Samaritan method. It's not the Jewish method. It's the divine method. And in verse 24, he, he lays it out. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit or truth. In spirit and truth. God seeks both enthusiasm and orthodoxy. He wants fervor and he wants knowledge. He wants spirit and he wants truth simultaneously. So let's break down those two things then. How should we worship? In spirit and in truth. Then what does it mean to worship in spirit? That word spirit, are you following me? In verse 24, it refers to the human spirit. It refers to the inner person. So we're to conclude that our worship to God is to flow from the inside out. It's not a matter of being in the right place at the right time with the right words, having the right demeanor, uh, singing the right songs, being in the right mood, wearing the right clothes. I say that because worship is not foremost in outward external activity for which we must create an environment every Sunday morning. Because it takes place on the inside. In the spirit, that's where it originates. That's what the psalmist said. Psalms 103.1, David said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is what? Within me. Bless his holy name. David's worship had its origin from within. Are you following me? From inside his spirit. That means authentic worship is a function first of the heart. Stephen Sharnick, a Puritan author, said, Without the heart, it is no worship. It is a stage play. We may be truly said to worship God, though we lack perfection, but we cannot be said to worship him if we lack sincerity. And that's exactly right. Worship is not true worship, biblical worship, worship pleasing to God, unless it comes from the very depths of our hearts. In fact, I think it's an insult to a holy God to worship Him out of formality, out of routine, out of duty. But how often can we come week after week in our corporate worship setting? How often can we bow down in our private prayer closet to worship and we just want to get through the next hour? We just want to utter a few words to soothe our conscience. We're going to come and sing the songs, but our minds are nowhere near the Lord. All we're doing is ritualistic formalities. It's got to come from inside. So if worship in the Spirit is worship from within, what does it look like? How do we worship in the Spirit? Well, three ways. Number one, you've got to be indwelt by the Spirit. Before we can worship God in our spirit, the Holy Spirit has to be there to produce true worship. Well, where do you get that? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 11. Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. In other words, if you don't have the Spirit of God prompting your heart and moving your heart and instructing your heart, you can't worship God because you can't even know God without the Holy Spirit. I'll add to that in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. In other words, without the Holy Spirit, you can't affirm the Lordship of Christ in your life. And if you can't affirm the Lordship of Christ in your life, you can't be a child of God. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
You have to affirm his lordship to be his child. And without the Holy Spirit drawing you to him, you can't affirm his lordship. So I would say this, the foundation of true worship in the spirit is salvation. One who is not saved cannot truly worship. They can go through the motions, they can give in the offering, they can be moved by a song, they can stand behind the pulpit and preach, they can be in a class and teach, they can be involved in nonprofit organizations in our town and go through all the benevolent deeds they want, they can get baptized a million times, but if you're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit by way of salvation, you are not truly worshiping the Lord. So then it's fair, it's fair to examine our spiritual hearts on the basis of our worship. What do I mean? If you had trouble worshiping, maybe you're not saved. I'll say it again. If you have trouble worshiping, maybe you're not saved. If it's a pattern in your life to get bored in church, or if it's a regular occurrence where you miss church altogether, it may be because the Holy Spirit isn't in you prompting your heart to worship. And you better be, you better be concerned about that. Better be concerned. So the first way to worship in the Spirit is to be indwelt by the Spirit to be saved. Here's the second way. We must have an undivided heart. What do I mean? A heart that is focused solely on God. Let's admit this, church, that our exposure to television and mass media by way of radio and internet and social media and Google, man, we have more to think about than any previous generation ever. When you come to church and you have a phone in your pocket, anybody can access you at any time. You want to know anything, it's at your fingertips. We are the age of information, and some of us have a hard time focusing very long on one subject. That's why when we come to God's house for corporate worship, that's why even when you go to your private prayer closets for worship, you must work at shutting off everything in your heart and your mind except that which pertains to God himself. David was a king. He had more on his plate than anybody in here has on their plate. That's why he wrote in Psalms 57.7, my heart is fixed. Oh God, my heart is fixed. What does that word fixed mean? Steadfast. Unwavering. Not distracted. My heart is fixed, and out of a fixed heart I will sing and give praise. When you come into God's house, it's really not time to be thinking about the game yesterday. I understand in our humanity, uh, we're going to encounter those thoughts. And when we do, that's not a sin at all. But we've got to shut off all distractions in our mind and refuse to be a distraction in God's house so we can enter into, with a fixed heart, biblical worship. Why do we have a children's ministry on Sunday morning? So that we can have fixed hearts. In all seriousness. I thought one Sunday we're going to bring all the kids in here, take all the babies out of the nursery and see what kind of worship's accomplished. Distraction. I found that some adults can be just as distracting. And we got to be mindful of these things. When we come in, you can be distracted from what happened at work last week. You can be distracted by the person that sang that you don't think is worthy of singing. You can be distracted by the person that didn't shake your hand when you walked by. Be distracted by a fight, fight you got in with your spouse on the way here. Be distracted by a bill you have no idea how you're going to pay and it's due Wednesday. If you want to worship... You've got to be able to lay those things aside and focus on God himself. An undivided heart. Here's the third thing. To worship in spirit, we must be repentant of our sin. Listen, if worshiping in spirit means it comes from the inside out, we better pay attention to what's on the inside. Because we can all put on a fake. Fake smile, 
We can feign Christianity the best, but in our heart be full of undealt sin. Now, I'm not at all implying that you have to be perfect when you come into this place. Because this is a hospital for, sin, for, for sinners, not a country club for saints, right? So we're all walking in with, with a sense of brokenness. But I'm talking about willful sin that you refuse to deal with. We have to be mindful and deal with our sin become, before we come into the holy place of worship. That's what, that's what Psalms 24 says. Our, our Christian school students just memorized this passage a couple weeks ago. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. And so if you want to worship truly, sincerely in spirit, then you need to be willing to deal with your sin. And thankfully, when you confess your sin to God, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And I just want to say this too. You don't have to confess to any man. Boy, I'm thankful for that. We don't have somebody located in the foyer Monday through Saturday, and before you come in on Sunday, you got to go in the booth. There ain't none of that going on. We believe in what we call the priesthood of the believer. You get your own booth. You get your own prayer closet. You don't got to go to it. You don't have to come to me. Now, that doesn't negate the fact that if we're, if we're in sin, we might need help. Somebody say amen. We might need accountability. We might need to confess just for the sake of humbling ourselves. But that ain't required to worship God. What's required to worship God is that you have a right heart. And, and you're not free of sin, but you're repentant of sin. So that's what worshiping in the spirit means. It means to worship from the inside out. It means to worship from the depths of your heart. And you do that by being saved. And then you do that by having a focused heart and a, a repentant heart. And listen, when that happens, you will be worshiping God in the spirit. But we can't stop there. Watch me. We can't stop with just, I'm sincere. It's coming from my heart. Because there are a lot of people, even in Christianity, that worship from their heart. They're sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. Why, Brother Tyler? Because a lot of their worship isn't attached to the right body of truth. I'll give you an extreme example. A group of worshipers called the fanatic shite Muslims, once a year slit their scalps. I could have showed a lot more gruesome pictures, and this, this is the least violent one I could find. They beat themselves, they, they slit their scalps with razors. They beat themselves in the head with the flat side of their swords to stimulate bleeding. They say men and boys and even infants have their shaved heads lacerated with a straight razor, and they march around in this square before the mosque, bleeding profusely with thousands, as thousands watch and chant, and they do it to celebrate the death of a Muslim leader more than a dozen centuries ago. And they claim that this hideous display, they claim it's worship. I know this stands as an extreme example of what attempting to worship apart from the right truth can become. And I understand that we'll probably never stand in danger of this Muslim practice. But watch here, we do stand in danger of detaching our worship from truth slowly over time and becoming very, very, very shallow. That's why we have to have a firm grip on what it means to worship, not just in spirit, but worship in truth. John MacArthur says this about worship. I think it's amazing. Worship is not merely an emotional exercise with God words or musical sounds that induce certain feelings. 
Worship is certainly not a mystical catharsis of human passion detached from any rational thought or biblical precept. True worship is a response of adoration and praise prompted by truth that God has revealed. So, watch. If Jesus said that our worship should be anchored in truth, question, what does he mean by truth? Because everybody has their own version of the truth. So if he says, worship based on truth, what is truth? Well, he explains several chapters later in John's gospel, in John 17, verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. The best commentary for the Bible is the Bible. If we're to worship in truth, and the word of God is truth, we must then worship out of an understanding of the word of God. That's why I'm going to stress two things here. One, the church has done to help us stay attached to truth, and one you should do to, to keep your worship attached to truth. And the first is what the church has done. We commit ourselves to Bible preaching. Call it expositional preaching. That's a systematically preaching through the Word of God. One chapter, one verse at a time, as it is written in the canon of Scripture. Now this is important. I want you to get this. I know it's philosophical, but we need this church. Expositional biblical preaching is not about moving the congregation to laughter or, te or tears by telling moving stories. It's not about merely being interesting or fun or entertaining or exciting. It's not about eliciting all manner of emotions. You know what expositional preaching is about? Taking a text of scripture, expounding on it, applying it, filling God's people with truth, and then out of that foundation of knowledge comes genuine worship. Why is that a big deal? Because there are some churches today, and if we're not careful, we'll, we'll fall right in line, that spend so much time in emotional hype and preliminary events that preaching has almost become an accessory in their services. Or when they get to the preaching, it's not an act, accurate exposition of the text before them. It's about their personal ideas. It's about some motivational speech. And hear me, church, when that happens in a church, worship becomes very shallow because it's no longer based on truth. It's based on sheer emotion and personality and hype. That, that, that's why Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. They're in the New Testament, the book of 1 Corinthians. That church had gone to the extreme of enthusiastic, mindless activity. So what they were doing is they were setting aside content and truth for the sake of this external, unintelligible, emotional experience. And Paul had to write a scathing letter to them to rebuke them for it. Perhaps I've never read a better quote about how that preaching and the word is related to worship than this. It's long, so follow him, please. Word and worship belong into solo with each other. All worship is an intelligent, loving response to the revelation of God because it is the adoration of his name. Therefore, acceptable worship is impossible without preaching. For preaching is making known the name of the Lord and worship is praising the name of the Lord made known. Far from being an alien intrusion into worship, which is what preaching is often viewed that way, right? We throw pom-poms around during the singing, the preaching goes, everybody goes to sleep. It's an alien intrusion. The reading and preaching of the word are actually indispensable to it. The two cannot be divorced. Indeed, it is their unnatural divorce which accounts for the low level of so much contemporary worship. Our worship is poor because our knowledge of God is poor, and our knowledge of God is poor because our preaching is poor. 
But when the word of God is expounded in its fullness and the congregation begin to glimpse the glory of the living God, they bow down and saw, bow down and saw them all in joyful wonder before his throne. It is preaching which accomplishes this. The proclamation of the word of God and the power of the spirit of God. That is why preaching is unique and irreplaceable. You think, well, that's just, a, that's just an opinionated quote. No, I'll show you in the Bible, in the book of Nehemiah, how that, how that worship is related to preaching. Because, because Nehemiah and his compadres in 52 days rebuilt the entire city of Jerusalem, walls around it. And they asked Ezra the scribe, can you come preach to celebrate what God did? And look what happened. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was a, he was a boy. No, that, that should mean he's above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And look what happened after the preaching. And all the people answered, amen, amen. That's why we say amen. With lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. That's why we have an altar call after every message. To give you an opportunity to respond in worship and bow your face to the ground. I am in no way elevating what I do. I'm in no way saying that, that, that I'm irreplaceable. It's the preaching of the word that is irreplaceable. It's the preaching of the word that this church must stay committed to or else we will have our worship detached from truth and it will go this way and this way and that way and that way and it will become very, very shallow. So just let me help you here. When the preaching of the word of God is happening, you should be as enthusiastic as you are when the choir is singing. You should be as stimulated in your mind and, and as enthusiastic in your spirit as when you are when we're singing good, good Father or how great thou art or nothing can wash away my sin but the blood of Jesus or what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear because the preaching of the word is the truth that we need to inform our worship. And we're going to be committed here by God's grace to biblical authoritative expositional preaching of the word. That's what we're doing to keep our, our, not just our music, but every form of worship attached to truth. What can you do? Here's what you can do. You can go home and read your Bible every single day. Because you need to keep your personal worship attached to truth. And the reason why so many Christians go off the rails theologically, and they go every which way, and they just kind of weird out in Christianity is because they don't spend time in God's Word. They'll watch that TV preacher and that TV preacher, and they'll see that Facebook clip and hear this on the radio, and then they'll put this hodgepodge of theology together. And their worship, I'm just going to say, it gets weird. Because their theology is weird. It's not taken from the Scripture. Look what Paul said in Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Then look what he attaches that to. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Paul does not separate worship through music and singing with the truth of the word of God. Meaning all genuine worship is a heartfelt response to what somebody has read or memorized or been taught in the Bible. Psalms 47.7 says, sing ye praises with understanding. 
So, so worship is not simply an ecstatic experience having no meaning or, or, or no content. Worship is not a good feeling apart from any comprehension of truth. Boy, we got we to get this. Worship is an expression of praise from the heart toward a God who is understood as he is truly revealed. Not, not your definition of God. God's definition of God. Therefore, we have to conclude that if worship is a response from understanding who God is, and he's revealed that in Scripture, in order to be able to have genuine worship, we have to have a faithful commitment to the Word of God. It's the only way we understand God. You understand that anybody, right, on any given Sunday can come into Fellowship Baptist Church and feel something during our services. I mean, they're like a walking zombie if they can't. With the music and instrumentation God's blessed us with, it's not hard to become emotional and involved to the point, even in our worship service, where, where, where we think we're worshiping primarily based on the way we feel. That couldn't be farther from the truth, though. Genuine worship doesn't happen because you feel something. It happens as an overflow of our understanding of God as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. In other words, when we sing a song like Good, Good Father and how he's perfect in all of his ways, I don't want you to be moved in your spirit by the fact that it's beautiful singing and it's doing something in your heart. No, no, no. I want you to be moved in your spirit because that, that music uh, is accompanied by a greater truth and because at some point you've been taught, you've read or you've memorized Psalms 1830 where it says, as for God, his ways are perfect. Amen. A lot of people when they think he's a good, good father, the only person they're thinking of is themselves. Only person they're thinking of, man, oh man, I had such a tough week, I just needed this song. Because man, it put me in the fields. Now I'm back in a good mood with Jesus. That's not worship. I can eat pizza and feel that way. I'm moved in my spirit not based on a feeling. I'm moved in a spirit, in my spirit based on a truth. As for God, his ways are perfect. I learned that as a child. And so when I hear that bridge song, he's perfect in all of his ways, I'm thinking, my mind's going to Psalms 18. That's truth. It's not some made up thing to make me feel good. When we sing a song like, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I don't want you to be moved because you can tap your toe and our stringed instruments are getting after it. I want you to be moved in your spirit because you've been reminded of a foundational principle in 1 Peter 1 in verse 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And when we sing a, a traditional hymn like that, I want your mind to be drawn back to the thing that I, I'm not relying on my baptism. I'm not relying on my good deeds. I'm not relying on my church membership. I'm not relying on my family heritage. I'm relying on the spotless, precious blood of Jesus that saved me. That's why I'm clapping my hands. Not because I want to be the only one in the room that's not. When you sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to him in prayer. I don't want you to like that song because your grandma taught you that in the 70s. I don't want you to attach your, be moved in the spirit because it has sentimental value to you. I want you to think of Hebrews chapter number 4. And verse 16 that says, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace 
that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you, when you sing about a friend like Jesus that you can talk to anytime, anywhere, about anything, I want you to be excited about that, and I want you to sing loud about that, and I want you to lift your hands about that, and I want you to shed a tear about that, not, not, not because your grandma taught you the song, not because you were raised singing that song and it's dear to your heart, but because you believe with all your heart that Jesus made a way for you to talk to God at any time, from anywhere, for anything. Me getting loud and passionate, I didn't plan on getting loud and passionate, but it's the truth that's informing my spirit. It's the fact that I can talk to people that don't understand me. I can talk to my own wife sometimes and I don't find comfort. I can call my parents and not get comfort. But I can talk to God and somehow, some way, I get comfort every time. Do you understand where I'm going? That's why we get so caught up in, well, I don't like that song. Some people don't like that song because it was new, and some people don't like that song because it's too old. In fact, I'm going to tell a church member I ate lunch with this last week. He said, before I came to fellowship, I couldn't stand the hymns. I just, there's lifeless, just boring. But he said, when I got here, I was pointed to the lyric of the hymn. The words in the hymn, and I realized, man, that, that's deep. It might have been written in a different time period that spoke of different English in some ways and might be ancient in our minds melodically, but, but if it's attached to the right body of truth, it ought to stir your heart, even if it's old. And then some of you are like, if we sing a, a song, Good, Good Father, and it repeats itself any more than twice, you're thinking, oh, man, that's worldly. I don't got time for that. That's, that's, that's kids' music. Well, what, what made songwriters in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s more inspired than songwriters in the 21st century? They're, they're, they're writing about the same God. I mean, people that wrote in your hymn book, those old hymns you like, many of them were like so far-fetched in their theology, it's not even cra it's crazy. You don't know that, you just liked it because your grandma liked it. I like it too, but I also like new songs. And new songs aren't bad, and repetition's not bad when you're repeating the right thing. And so we get caught up in like these styles of worship wars when it's not about that. It's about a body of truth. And I can get fired up about an old song in the 40s or 50s, and I can get fired up about a song called Good, Good Father because they are both right. They are both true. What am I saying? If you don't ever read your Bible, you don't even know these truths. You know them up here, but they're not settled in your heart. And so you might cry with us, sing with us, shout with us, praise with us, lift your hands with us, whatever. But your worship is going to be shallow at best because it's detached from a biblical conviction in your heart. Your words might be an expression of praise, but they're not an expression of praise based on a Bible truth. It's merely an expression of emotion that makes you feel good in the moment. And to say worship shouldn't make you feel good is just as heretical, because worship should make you feel good every time. Absolutely. Because worship helps us transcend our worldly sorrows and focus only on God himself. And if that doesn't make you feel good, you're dead. But the main purpose is not to come to church to feel good. The main, we're, we're supposed to lose ourselves 
put all our focus on the only one that is truly good. And that's Jesus Christ. So when we sing a song, get your mind out of the valley you're in. Get your mind out of the sickness you're carrying. Get your mind out of everything you're going through and focus on God himself. And, and that's what worship does. It doesn't mean that you can't pray about those things. It doesn't mean that you can't pass through your mind. But, but it's not about what does this song do for me. It's about what can I do through this song for my Savior. That's what it's about. So let me tell you what you can do with this message. You ready? Number one. You can check your heart on a regular basis. If worship in the spirit comes from the inside, then you need to make, your, make sure you're saved, make sure you're focused, and make sure you're repentant of your sin. And that is a daily responsibility. Statement number two, you need to stay in the word. Because if your truth becomes, de- if your worship becomes detached to truth, you are in a dangerous place. It will be all about what you feel and not about who God is. And so stay in the word. Stay engaged in the preaching. And as a church, let me say this, and I'm done. We got to be careful about keeping a balance. Not fighting over, it's the Jews' worship, it's the Samaritans' worship. No, it's the divine worship of, of spirit and truth. That means every time you come into God's house, follow this and I'm done, every time you come into God's house, then you come with a right heart and a mind full of truth. And when the praises are sung, and when the prayer is given, and when, and when we give in the offering, we serve, it's going to come from a biblical heart of worship in spirit and in truth. Stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed.